morning. It's a privilege to open God's word with you. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna open to First Peter. You can turn there. When was the last time you said, "That's just what I needed," without a hint of sarcasm? That's just what I needed. Uh, I I can think about you know on uh, on a Saturday morning. I've I've had a you know long week. You know, it's been a busy week, getting a lot accomplished, and you wake up, and there's a Saturday morning, and it's, it's cool outside, and I get to watch my six-year-old play soccer, and six-year-old soccer is the best, it's just the herd ball, just kind of moving around, it's, it's awesome. That's just what I needed after a long week, or, or I think about, you know, this last spring was, was really challenging, we were, we were really busy as a family, doing all these sorts of things over the spring, and we thought we'd get to the summer and find some kind of some respite there, but we didn't, didn't find that in the summer. And so uh, late in the summer, we decided we're taking a, a vacation and we're going to go visit some friends in northern Arkansas. And it was quiet and it was still. Uh, there, was, uh, there was nobody there. Uh, you know, there's not even a stoplight in the town. We were sitting at a stop sign and somebody drove by and, and my friend said, uh, hey, we had a traffic jam. <laughs> there's one car. Uh, we... We left that week thinking, man, that's just what we needed. Um, I think about this summer. You know, we, it, was, it was hot for several days in a row, and it, was, uh, it never rained, and my yard was struggling. It, it was really struggling. I did, you know, within the city ordinance, I did everything I could to keep that thing alive. I tried different sprinklers. I tried different strategies to try to keep my grass going, and still it was looking pretty rough. Uh, I'm sure you understand. My yard was looking rough over the summer, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in August, it poured down rain. And there was like a, there was like a, you know, I don't know, a two-week span where it, there was a chance of rain every single day. And my yard went from looking kind of rough to overnight, it, it was awesome. It was like, it went from like Sahara desert to tropical jungle overnight. It's like, it's like my yard was saying, that's just what I needed. You know, good try with your sprinkler, but really what I needed was I needed it to rain. That's just what I needed. You know, there's a, a, a large group of people in this room, and we're all different, different things going on, but one of the things that unites us is that every single person in this room has experienced pain. Maybe, maybe your hurt happened a long time ago and you still bear the scars of that pain, or maybe you're walking through it right now, and I know just a few stories of people in our congregation who are walking through significant difficulty right now, and so hurting, hurt, is something that, that unites all of us in this room. And I think as we look at 1 Peter together, I think what the apostle has for us is like rain on a broken, cracked, dry ground. Many of your souls, your hearts are broken and cracked and dry. And what Peter offers us is hope for the hurting. And that's what we're going to be looking at together 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be for the entire month, just the one chapter for the entire month. I invite you, I want to challenge you over the next several weeks uh, to read 1 Peter chapter 1, just the one chapter, once a week. So, so at the end, you will have read it like five times, okay? 
So just read that, let it sink into your soul, and we can study this together. This morning, we're just going to look at the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to discover how Peter offers hope to the hurting by telling them to remember who they are, to remember how they got there, and to receive God's gift. So let's look together. I'm going to read these two verses. Peter writes this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would use it to encourage us, to mend our hearts, to prepare us to walk through these days with you. And I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at these two verses, these two verses can be organized into three different parts. The first part that, that kind of organizes us is author. Peter identifies himself as the author of this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it's not just any Peter. It's Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. This, this Peter was the man who spent three years of his life with Jesus. He, he was a man that was like many of us. He owned a small business. He was married and everything. He was kind of minding his own business and and then he met Jesus, and that changed everything for him. And he spent three years of his life with the Lord Jesus. You know, the Lord Jesus had, had, had many, uh, like a multitude that followed him, and he had several disciples, dozens of disciples, and then, and then he had the 12, the 12 apostles. But within those 12 apostles, he had like three senior leaders, three guys that he was particularly close to. And th these three guys were privy to some moments that not everybody else was. One of those moments was the transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, he was up on a mountain, and the Lord Jesus had a conversation with Moses and Elijah about his crucifixion and his resurrection. There were only three other people there. It was James and John, they were brothers, and then there was Peter. Peter was there when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was arrested. Peter was there when Jesus was on trial. He was there when Jesus was crucified. He saw Jesus die. Peter saw Jesus placed into the tomb. And Peter was the first of the apostles to the empty tomb. Uh, the first ones to see it, uh, it, it was the women. They, they were there first and they saw it. And the angel of the Lord spoke to the women and, and, they, and, and the angel told the women, go tell the disciples that the Lord Jesus is alive. Go tell the disciples and Peter. It's like Peter has this special place of leadership. And, and in John's gospel, it says that, that when they get this news that the Lord Jesus is alive and he's not in the tomb, John says, me and Peter made a run for it, but Peter's faster than me. And Peter got there first. So Peter is a leader in the early church. He preaches the first his first sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved on that day. He, he lives out the remainder of his life as a kind of pastor, but not a pastor of 
of one church, but as an apostle with this authority over all the churches. And he writes two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And he gives them to the church, and he writes with authority. He has authority because he is an apostle. He was somebody who, who saw the Lord Jesus, saw his life, saw his death, saw his resurrection, and then the Lord Jesus called him out and commissioned him as an apostle of the church. So he writes with authority. Now, one of the things that I love best about God is that he uses broken and wounded and messed up people to accomplish his global goals. And, and, that, and that's Peter, you know? P- Peter is somebody who is constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He, he's constantly acting rashly. But one of his biggest problems was that Peter seems to deal with this fear of man. I think about the story when when Jesus is arrested in the garden. Peter had just told Jesus, hey, if if it's going down, I'm ready to die for you. And, And now they're in the garden and it's going down. Peter reaches for his sword and Jesus says, not that way. And then Peter makes a run for it, doesn't he? And now Jesus is on trial. It's not going down the way Peter thought it would go down. And now Jesus is on trial and they say, hey, aren't you one of the guys that was with Jesus? And and what is Peter's response? I don't know him. It's not me. You got the wrong guy. Three times he denies that he even knows Jesus. Why? Because Peter feared man. Peter feared the pain that was to come if he associated himself with Jesus. Jesus. This is Peter. And at the end of John's gospel, the Lord Jesus restores Peter. Three times, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And feed my sheep. And that's what Peter is doing here in this letter is he's continuing to feed Jesus' sheep. At the end of his life, he sits down and writes these letters. That's the author. The second part of this greeting here is the audience. The opening of this letter includes the audience. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are place names, places, uh, not necessarily cities or towns, but maybe some of them are regions. These are areas in modern-day Turkey. They're listed in, in, if you were to plot them on a map, it would be in a circle. Um, And And it's in a circle for a few reasons. One is that's just a good way to remember how they go and to remember them all. It's also the likely route that a courier would bring this letter. So he's writing to churches in multiple places. So this letter had to be taken from one place to another. So he would follow this route in a circular fashion. And what this explains to us is that 1 Peter is what we would call a circular letter. A circular letter is a a letter that, yes, it's written to a certain people at a certain time, but it's not only intended for those certain people at that certain time, but rather it's really, it applies to all churches everywhere. And so while Peter is writing to these specific people, he's also writing to us. This is a letter that we should receive and understand and apply to our own lives. Now, Peter writes to these people, and, and it's probable that he didn't really know any of them personally. As we look in both of these letters, there are no personal greetings. You can look at Paul's letters, and Paul is greeting all sorts of people all over the place, but in in these letters, Peter doesn't greet anyone by name. 
So Peter doesn't know anyone in these churches specifically, but he does know what they're going through. The reason why he knows what they're going through is because they are kind of struggling with the same fear of man that he struggles with. You see, in first century Rome, it was, it, it was uh, expected that you would worship the Roman gods. The, the cry of the, the Roman religion, Caesar is Lord. But, but in the first century, when Peter is writing, nobody's being thrown to the lions yet. No, nobody's being, uh, you know, there's not gladiators and, and people being burned alive at the stake uh, because of the Roman government yet. That's not happening when Peter is writing this this letter, as a matter of fact, uh, the guy that is the, the emperor of Rome during this time period is a guy named Claudius. And Claudius's plan was uh, to kind of keep peace in the Roman Empire is he was going to let you kind of worship whatever god you wanted to worship. You can be whatever religion you wanted to be, um, and, and everybody's going to be happy. There was only three things that, that Claudius was not tolerant towards. So, so he's a tolerant guy when it comes to to uh, religion, but he's not tolerant towards three things. One, you can't use your religion to disturb public peace. Two, you can't use your religion to offend accepted morals. There were things that the Romans thought was okay, you can't tell them they're wrong, and there were things that the Romans thought were wrong, and you can't go and do those things because of your religion. The third thing that, that Emperor Claudius would not tolerate was trying to convert Romans. You can't try to make Roman citizens be your religion. Those three things. Now, if you think about it, Christians would actually have to be guilty of all three. Disturbing the public peace. One time Paul got up and preached a sermon in Ephesus and there's a riot. He's guilty. Uh, offending accepted morals. There are things that the Roman uh, uh, culture and society would do that Christians just can't be a part of and you would have to speak against as a believer in Jesus, refuse to do those things. There were things that, that Christians would do that, that the Romans thought was wrong and so there was this, this idea of offending accepted morals. And then the last one, trying to convert the Romans, that's necessary as a believer in Jesus. Jesus told us, go and make disciples of all nations. And so if we're going to obey the Lord Jesus, we're going to come into conflict with the Roman government. And so Christians were considered to be a menace. People in local communities were suspicious of them. They, they didn't like them. And so Christians were ostracized and they were isolated. They were accused of all sorts of things that weren't true. And they were brought into court on trumped up charges, and people would refuse to do business with them. So let's say you owned a fishing company like Peter, and they knew that you were a Christian. People in your local community would refuse to do business with you because you were a believer in Jesus. And that, that's a challenge to your livelihood. And so these, these Christians in the first century Rome, the, their, their temptation was to say, you know what, it would be a whole lot easier if I just weren't a Christian. It would just be, it would be a whole lot easier for me if I could just go along with what everybody else is doing. Why do I always got to do these certain things? It would be easier if I would just be like everybody else. And so they dealt with this fear of man, this, this pressure to compromise. Maybe I can still call myself a Christian, but these things over here I'm not going to do so that I can kind of fit in with everybody else. They, they felt this pressure, this, this fear of man, this, this fear of, of pain in my life. We don't want that. 
And you and I, we, we understand that temptation, right? Or we, don't, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different. We want people to like us. And so the, the temptation is, is to compromise. After all, nobody wants to feel pain. So what we do is we look for opportunities. We look for chances that we have to kind of dodge pain. We, we don't want to hurt. No one wants to hurt. So if there's anything I can do to avoid it, then maybe I'll do that. So, so Peter is, is writing to these believers that are struggling with that. And, and really he's writing to us because we, we face the same things. That's the audience. And then third, we have the greeting. The greeting. The, the audience to whom Peter is writing, they're, man, they're tempted to quit. They're, they're tempted to give up on Jesus. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them. He knows their struggle. He knows their hurt. He knows their pain. And he is going to specifically address suffering throughout the entire letter. So how does he begin this letter? He begins this letter in three ways. There are three parts to this greeting. The first one is this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, remember who you are. Knowledge of identity can change perspective. Identity is a big deal. My grandfather was a basketball coach at Southwest Texas State University. You can tell why they changed it to Texas State. It's a mouthful. Uh, he was a basketball coach there for, for many years. He lived in the community of San Marcos for several decades. And so he became kind of locally famous in the area. And we couldn't go anywhere with him without him seeing somebody he knew or somebody who knew him, and he would have this conversation. So he was well-known, and everyone knew him, and he wanted me to leverage that. So anytime I had any sort of business in San Marcos, he would, he would want me to, to uh, kind of reveal my identity. He would say, just tell him who you are. Just tell him who you are. You're going to buy a car? Go to this specific dealership. Uh, find the general manager. This is his name. Ask for him. When he comes out, you just tell him who you are. He'll take care of you. Oh, you're going to Chick-fil-A? I know the manager. When you get there, you ask for the manager if he's there. Just tell him who you are. He'll take care of you at Chick-fil-A. Like he, just tell him who you are, right? It, this idea of identity. So Peter begins his letter to this, to this struggling people, and, and he tells them of their identity. It's like he's saying, let me tell you who you are. Let me remind you who you are. So he identifies his audience, and, he, and, and the way that he does it, he says it right there in verse 1. You are the elect exiles of the dispersion. So we're going to have to take a moment to unpack that. The main idea there is, is exiles. This idea of an exile. An exile is someone who doesn't live at home. Home is where you, you, you feel a sense of belonging and, and identity. A, a home is a place where you can be yourself. You can let your guard down. There are people in our society who do not live at home, like college students. 
They're not living at home. They're, they're somewhere else. It's kind of like a, a sense of exile. And there are people who travel for work. They've got to live out of a hotel for an entire week. And, and that's not really all that enjoyable. They just want to be home. We have these different ideas of exile in our, in our society. But the theme of exile runs all throughout the Bible. You can find exile all over the place. It starts in the first story of the Bible. Adam and Eve sin against God, and they're, they're kicked out of the garden. They're exiled out of the Garden of Eden. The very next story of the Bible has exile in it. Cain kills his brother Abel, and, and Cain is exiled from the family, and he has to go eastward. This idea of exile shows up in the people of Israel. God says, if you go into the promised land, and you sin against me, and you start worshiping idols, then I'm going to exile you. I'm going to send in another country to defeat you militarily, and they're going to carry you off to their country. You're going to live in exile if you sin against me in that way. And, and if you know the story of the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens. And, and Babylon comes in and wipes out Jerusalem and carries people off into exile. So all of the, these stories of exile are in the Bible. That's Daniel and uh, his three buddies, the book of Daniel. That's a perfect example. Daniel and, and his three friends are Jewish exiles, and they want to worship the one true God, but they're living in Babylon. The dominant culture doesn't worship the one true God, and they're often faced with this, this challenge of, of how, do I, how do I stay true to the one true God, but also live in this, this society, this culture that doesn't think the same way as me. And what it leads to, that leads them to a, a place where they have to decide Am I going to stay true? Am I going to be faithful? Am I going to stick with God? Or am I going to be, am I, am I going to just bow? And what it cost them was the fiery furnace and the lion's den. That's what it cost them. But they refused to compromise. See, Peter calls his audience, and he calls you, exiles. The reason why you feel the way that you do is because you are not at home. You are exiles. This world, this culture, this country is not your home. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, he said it this way, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. We know it deep in our bones. We don't belong here. We know it deep in our, in our bones. This world is not our home. C.S. Lewis kind of said it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Things aren't right. There's brokenness. There's pain. There's, there's hurt. There's suffering in our lives. And the reason why is because you and I, believers in Jesus, we are exiles. This is not our home. We are just passing through. We're, we're not there yet. We're exiles. And man, the good news is that Peter qualifies that a little bit. He doesn't just call them exiles. He calls them elect exiles. Elect exiles. The, the reason that you are in exile is because God has chosen you. 
What that means is that you might feel alone, but you aren't alone. It means that you might feel rejected, but you aren't rejected. You are chosen by the God of the universe. I love the way that Moses describes the people of Israel and their special relationship with the Lord. He, he says it this way in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, do you, do you want to know why the Lord has chosen to set his love on you? Do you want to know why? It's not because you're the biggest. It's not because you're the most powerful or the most good-looking or the richest. That's, that's not why the Lord has chosen to set his love on you. It's not because you're the smartest. Do you know why? It's because he wanted to. That's why. He picked you because he wanted to pick you. You are elect exiles. Can you feel the weight of that in your own life? You might feel rejected, but you aren't. You might feel alone, but you aren't. The God of the universe loves you and has chosen to receive you. So remember who you are. Remember who you are. The next part of this greeting, remember how you got there. Not only remember who you are, but remember how you got there. There was a study that showed 42% of people who get lost on a hike is because they left the trail. They, they somehow, for one reason or another, they, they got off the trail. They were headed to a destination, but they got off the trail to go do something else, and now they're lost. If they could only remember how they got where they got, they could get back on the trail and they'd be on, back on their way to their journey. And so what Peter is doing here is he's saying, look, we gotta get back on the pathway. We gotta remember how we got where we got. Not just remember who you are, but, but remember how you ended up here in the first place. And so he structures, in verse two, he structures these next three phrases according to the Holy Trinity. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Father, Son, and Spirit are all present in verse 2, first he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, because of, because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. The, you see, the Father foreknew. Now that, that can be a confusing statement to make, and, and we could make some assumptions on, on what that means. And, and there are some that would say, well, all that can mean is that, that God knew ahead of time. God, God knew about this and he knew about you ahead of time. He knew the facts of the situation beforehand. And that's certainly true. God did know the facts of who you are, who you would be, what you would be walking through, your pain, your hurt. He knew the facts ahead of time, yes. But that's not all that that means. The way the Bible uses the word foreknow actually uses it more than just a knowledge of facts. It's actually a knowledge of a person, an intimate relationship, a decision, a choosing of a person in advance. Peter uses it that way in verse 20 of chapter 1, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It's not just that he knew about Jesus, it's that he knew him before the foundation of the world. He appointed him before the foundation of the world. So the Father foreknew. Here's what that means. God has initiated his relationship with you. God initiated it. The way Jesus says it is, you did not choose me. I chose you. And really what he means is I chose you first, and then you chose me. 
But I, I, I initiated this relationship with you. What, what Peter is explaining to us is simply this. The Father has decided ahead of time, I'm going to set my love on these people. I love these people. I choose these people. The Father foreknew. And then it says that the Spirit sanctified in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit sanctified. The Spirit consecrated. This word sanctification, it can be a challenging word for us as well because it means a couple of things. One thing it could mean is sanctification is the process of being made into the image of Christ more and more and more like Jesus over time. It's going to take your lifetime that, that God will shape and fashion you over time into the image of Jesus. That, that is sanctification, but that's not what Peter means here. Sanctification also talks about a one-time event. It means a setting apart. So I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to set you aside for my purposes. I, I have a little bit of a sweet tooth. I like candy. And somebody, yeah, Jorge's with me. We can go to the QT after this. Uh, I, like, I like sweet tarts. That's one of the things that I like to eat. But here's the thing, I don't like the green ones. So I go through, you, you open that, it's like a little roll. If you don't know what these are, it's a little roll. And you just kind of open it. And, uh, and when I get to a green one, I, I pull it out and I set it aside. So then when I'm done eating my sweet tarts, I have a pile of green ones over here. I've set them apart. I've set them aside because I don't like them. What Peter is explaining to us is that the Holy Spirit does the exact same thing, just with opposite motivation. The Father has chosen to set his love on you, and the Spirit has grabbed you and said, mine. This is the one I want. This one is mine. The Father foreknew, the Spirit sanctified, and then third, the Son ratified. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This phrase, sprinkling with his blood, it is a, um, it's like a hyperlink back to the Old Testament. It's pointing us backward to the Old Testament. And what Peter does all throughout his letter is he's just going to grab hold of the Old Testament over and over and over again. The reason why Peter wants to draw our attention to the Old Testament so much is he wants to explain to us as believers in Jesus, as Christians, we are the new people of God. There have been a, a people of God from the beginning, but, but the makeup uh, of that uh, the membership of that people of God has kind of changed over time. It was, it was Adam and Eve, and it was, it was Abraham and, and his family, and then it was the people of Israel, and they, they, they were made the people of God in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. And there's this, there's this whole thing, and you have the law that's given. Those were the people of God. But now there's a new covenant, and you and I are a part of this new covenant where we are now the people of God. There aren't Three or four peoples of God, there is one people of God and we are it. We are the new people of God. This new covenant has been ratified by the blood of Jesus. And so the people of God over here, they had, they had laws and rituals and sacrifices and festivals and feasts and Sabbaths that they had to keep to be a part of this covenant. But that's over. That has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of it points forward to him. And he fulfills it. We don't need it anymore. And now we are a part of a new covenant that has been ratified in his blood. 
Listen, listen. In the Old Testament, we can go back and look at it, Exodus 24 or something. In, in, in the Old Testament, when, when the covenant with the people of Israel is ratified, the people pledge their obedience to God, and then Moses takes the blood of oxen and he sprinkles it on the altar to say, this, this is it, this is it. This is a ratified covenant. Uh, it, it is assured this is what we will be doing. But then we get to the New Testament. And Peter says it's not, it's not the blood of oxen that was shed and sprinkled to ratify this new covenant. No, it was the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you thought the blood of oxen was, uh, was powerful, well, just you wait and see what the blood of the Son of God can do. The promise that God has made to us is ratified with the blood of Jesus. Your future is secure because Jesus' blood assures it. See, the Father foreknew, the, the Spirit sanctified, and the Son ratified with his own blood. Look, we, we don't have to travel too far. We don't have to think too far outside the box to see how all of this applies to us. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, we should expect pain and hurting. We should expect the world to not understand us. We should expect them to not like us. We should expect them to exclude us, to leave us out, to call us names, to accuse us of things that are not true. Students, it is hard. It's hard because you're alone and you feel alone. It's hard. But this is who we are. This is who we are. This is who we have been made to be. And the pressure for us is to compromise. And it's not just with, with our society, but it's with any sort of hurt that comes in our life. When, when life hits us in the face, when, when times get hard, it is a challenge to faith. Do I believe God or not? Am I with him or not? What hope do we have? Peter says to us the same thing that he says to these churches in Turkey. I've been where you've been. Your, your uh, fiery trial matches my fiery trial when I stood outside Jesus on trial and, and I denied him. <laughs> I've been there and I failed. But you, you don't have to because look, you're God's chosen people. He picked you. The Father has decided to love you. The Spirit has pulled you out and said, you are mine, and the Son has shed his own blood on our behalf. So remember who you are and remember how you got there. Now those are two ideas up here. But what I want you to see in this text is that Jesus actually offers us a gift. He offers us a gift that we can put our hands on here at the end of verse 1. And, and so we can re remember who we are. We can remember how we got there. But then the encouragement here is for us to receive God's gift. He says at the end, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, God's grace, this is his favor 
toward people. This is his, his decision to, to like people and to pour out blessing and to ensure the good of people, even though they don't deserve it. He, he still chooses to love us. This is God's grace. God's peace is the sense of wholeness and, and well-being. Uh, it, God's peace is a result of God's grace because we, we know that, that God has, has favored us and if we know that God has favored us, then that gives us a sense of, of wholeness and well-being even in the midst of the most difficult of times. We can know peace in the midst of, of difficulty. You know, if, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so this, this ending, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, that, that sounds like a normal New Testament greeting, you know? If you've read the New Testament, you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's what they do. But actually, it, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't, because there's a part in here that, that is unique. And it's this, this word, be multiplied. Be multiplied. You see, it's not just that Peter wants you to have grace and peace from God. It's that Peter wants you to have grace and peace multiplied. Why? Because he knows what it's like and that it's hard. He knows that it's difficult to stick with Jesus when times get tough. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You need it. God wants to provide what you need to endure. God knows what you need, and he wants to give it. It's his grace and his peace. There's one other thing that I want to point out to you about this, this greeting. It's the last word, to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You can't see it in English because we don't have a word, but in the original language, it's actually a plural you. It's plural. Uh, we actually have one. It's, it's y'all, but you can't put y'all in the Bible. There's a rule somewhere about that. May grace and peace be multiplied to you all. This letter is not written to an individual. This letter is written to a church. This letter would have been distributed in these areas, and, and, and somebody would have got up, and they would have said, hey, uh, you know, the apostle Peter wrote us a letter. I'm going to read it. Y'all be quiet. Listen. And he would have read this to them. This letter is written to, to us. And, and I don't necessarily mean the big C church, although that's true. What I, what I mean is central. This letter is written to central. Listen, together, collectively, we are exiles. Together. Some of us experience more pain and hurting than others, but we are members with one another. We are a collective body. We are a community of believers. We are all in this together. That's what church is. That's what we're doing here. What did you come to Central for? When you decided you were going to come to church today, what did you come for? Did you come for a good show from the band? A good speech from the pastor? That's always an interesting compliment, by the way. Hey, good speech, pastor. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. But what, what, did, what did you come for? What did you come for? 
What did you expect to see? If what you were looking for was for you to be served and pleased and your expectations met, then you've come to the wrong place. Because at Central, we're not, we're not fans. We're family. We're not fans. We're, we're family. Those are actually two different things because fans, they, they come for the show. They, they come and they expect to be entertained. They, fans come and they want their expectations met. And if they're not met, what fans do is they, they leave and they leave a, a mean social media review. Nobody's done that. And then they go somewhere else. Those are fans. But here at Central, that's not who we are. We're family. Family, we stick together no matter what. Family, we're not here to be served, but to serve. Family, we're, we are members with one another. Look, when, you, when your family has like Thanksgiving dinner, and you go over to grandma's house, and your aunt burned the turkey, you don't leave and leave a mean social media review on your family and then go find another family. That makes no sense. You don't do that, they're your family. You laugh at your aunt for burning the turkey. We're family. That's who we are. We are together with one another through thick and through thin. We aren't attenders, we are members with one another. We are in this together and when we suffer, we suffer together. When we hurt, we hurt together. When our students are struggling because they're trying to walk with Jesus in this crazy world, we hurt together. We suffer together. We are family. But it's hard to feel that membership when all you do is come to worship. You're just a face in a crowd. You might say hi to some people on your right or your left, but it's hard to, it's hard to really feel I'm members with these people. What group are you in? I know it's hard. I know it's hard time commitment. Some of you serve at 945, so what are you supposed to do? But what group are you in? That's how you can know others and be known by others. That's how you sense membership with others. That's who you suffer with. That's who you rejoice with. What group are you in? And we're gonna, we have a great opportunity coming up in a couple of weeks. ABF block party is coming during the ABF hour right out here. We're gonna have all of our groups set up you're gonna learn more about that, but that's a great opportunity to go around and see other groups. And if you're not plugged into one, that's a great chance to find one. To be members with one another. What group are you in? We are family. Look, where are you serving? We are family with, with one another. We are serving. People in their families have jobs they do. Somebody cuts the grass, you know? Some, somebody, somebody does the dishes. Somebody makes dinner, somebody cleans up after dinner. Hopefully that's not all the same person, you know? But we, we have places that we serve in our family. Where are you serving? We have all kinds of places that you can serve at this church. One of our places that, that really needs help is preschool. They really need help in our preschool. And I know many of you have served there before and, and maybe you feel like your, your time is done there and I understand that. But our, our family has a need, and we need to rise up and meet that need. Where are you serving? We are members with one another. When, when we are hurting, everybody is hurting. 
We are elect exiles. So, so listen, are you, are you weary? Are you tired? Are, are you tempted to quit on Jesus? Because it's just too much. I just want to be like everybody else. Are you troubled? Are you disturbed? Are you in pain? Are you hurting? I want you to listen how Peter kicks off this whole letter to you. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied 